Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And this is our final episode of the year. So, what, we gotta reflect back on the year and think about it. Do we have to? I thought you and I were living in the same timeline and maybe you wouldn't want to either. Can we get out of this? (laughs) Okay, yes. We keep trying to find a year that I would actually want to look back on. Um, but I do, I do think it's important to have an accounting. I mean, can you believe that uh, the Trump's attempted coup, the insurrection on January 6th, which I'm afraid is going to become like this holiday for Republicans, was almost a year ago. And now people are trying to make it like it never happened. If the midterm elections put the Republicans in power, they're going to kill that investigation that's going on in the House about what happened on January 6th. I think, you know, watching that investigation, it's so interesting what people say when they're being investigated. It's like, I didn't do anything. That's not how I remember it. I only did what other people expected. I swear I'll cooperate, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And in the case of Mark Meadows, as we've been seeing in the news recently, who is Donald Trump's former chief of staff, I'll cooperate until I won't. So he like turned over all of his incriminating stuff and then like said, I'm not going to help anymore. It was, didn't seem like a good way to not cooperate. Um, Meadows handed over 9,000 pages of information about the events that day, but now it's clear like he was a ringleader and now he's suddenly not talking to Congress. We're taping on December 17th and earlier this week, the House voted to recommend holding him in criminal contempt for refusing to cooperate. He's the first former member of Congress to be in this position in something like 200 years. So... I'm wondering what the fate of the January 6th inquiry means about how people tell stories in a way that shifts blame and erases history. I mean, this is how it happens. This is the moment in which it happens, that kind of erasure. And, you know, like, what does it mean for someone like me to be sitting around watching this? And in other words, have I ever been a version of Mark Meadows? A horrifying question. Joining us to talk about this today is my friend Asali Solomon, author of the new and totally brilliant novel, The Days of Afrikiti. Asali's first novel, Disgruntled, was named a Best Book of the Year by the San Francisco Chronicle and the Denver Post. Her debut story collection, Get Down, earned her a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 honor and was a finalist for the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. Her work has appeared in O, The Oprah Magazine, Vibe, Essence, The Paris Review Daily, McSweeney's, and several anthologies and on NPR. She teaches fiction writing and literature of the African diaspora at Haverford College. She was born and raised in Philadelphia, where she lives with her husband and two sons. Asali, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Back in 2018, you wrote an article for The Root called Killing the Donald Trump in, in Us, How to Be Less Like the Man We Elected to Lead Us, which probably easier said than done, I guess. Number two on your list of recommendations was to familiarize yourself with the Constitution. That was pre-coup. Where were you on January 6th? And what do you think about the version of the story that Mark Meadows and others like Jim Jordan are telling about that time now? So, first, okay, so the thing I wrote was, I should... I should clarify was for very smart brothers. And I should say that because that's a very beloved, is a very beloved institution that I think recently maybe stopped publishing. But anyway, I remember exactly what I was doing. And I don't like, I was going to the dentist's office and then I was leaving the dentist's office and I kept pulling off the road because I have a really good friend who works at one of the, um, a major news organization And she was basically giving us the blow by blow as it happened. And the funny thing about it was, is that she seemed really alarmed at the very beginning, but I didn't really think, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. I think, I think what happened was somewhere between the nothing that I thought would happen or full on coup. Right. Um, But at the same time, like it really, we've really come to a, point here in this country where the only thing that matters is what people say about a thing. So not the thing that actually happened, but what people are saying about it. So if, if, you know, if a critical number of people don't say like, you know what, you really can't just fully try to take over the country in plain view of everybody, like that's not okay. Then, you know, we just keep rolling along. Incidentally, I really didn't study the constitution during years <laughs> like I should have. But I did hear a lot more about it in the news. You know, I didn't know what the 25th Amendment was. But I think the other thing I realized is that the Constitution doesn't really matter to the people who claim it matters to them. And that's like the really biggest problem here. Yeah. I look I, I don't know, Sugi, I don't know what you thought, but I thought at the time, and I have completely changed my opinion on this, that like I thought this is bad. Don't like it. However, it's really actually going to be good for Democrats. And this will put Trump beyond the pale of political, you know, like, and that was not at all what happened. And I really was surprised at how much the abject, like how many people have accepted the the big lie, like really become part of the political fabric of America now. Um, Not that we haven't had other big lies in the past, but this one was so blatant um, and bizarre and that, and that these people are being sort of made heroes the full rewriting of that is very Kremlin for me and, and it was it's scary, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I, I'm not as surprised by that as I am surprised by just the, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know where people think the people who are embracing that. I'm not sure where they think this is all going. Like it's not going to go anywhere good. You know, like, well, I think they think it's going to go to like we're putting in place the ability to make elections be non-democratic. I just think that's it. Yeah. But after that, I, th- I think that there are a lot of landscape, you know, landscaping professionals, like the people who showed up that day that are not going to like having no government. I don't think that they're, they really want it like that, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. It's this kind of like it's this really interesting myth making, like watching the January 6th um, select committee you can see all these people who sort of come forward and say, I never said X. And I'm like, but here is a document, a newspaper article from this. Yeah, no, they can just keep saying that. 
right? Yeah. I mean, that's how it works now. It's like, you just keep saying whatever you, whatever you want to say, regardless of the actual facts in front of you or behind you, you know? Yeah. That's like, what I'm talking about in terms of criminology, where you would read about like, they would erase somebody literally take them out of photographs when they became discredited with the administration as if that person no longer existed in the Soviet sort of government space. And, and I feel like the Republican Party is completely fine with working history in that manner. And, and doing it so openly is the, I mean, I think they've always been fine about erasing parts of our history, most of things that have to do with race and, and, um, and class, right? But, but to do it in this sort of direct manner is a new, seems like a new development to me. I mean, for me, there is some of that, but I also feel like so much of what's happening, like you said, it really is about them. I mean, for so long, like the United States has been sort of like had a party line about democracy and freedom and been like a really vicious oppressor of minorities. And so that was always a kind of like double speak, I think, in a way that that now it just is like affecting larger swaths of people and they're they're sort of blowing off larger swaths of people and i think that's kind of so in a sense even though it is different i think it's a widening of what's always been or what's always been there so one of the things that your novel is interested in is this kind of like erased history and and ways in which it resurfaces or kind of takes its toll on people's personal lives also and so i want to come back to mark meadows and his shenanigans um, but I also want to set the scene of your book a little for our listeners. And I feel like I can see some of the ideas and interests from the Very Smart Brothers essay in the novel. Um, and The Days of Africa is an intensely political story. The protagonist, LaSalle, is a queer Black woman who's the wife of Wynne Anderson, an aspiring white politician who's being investigated by the FBI in, in the form of like a Black FBI agent, which is kind of an interesting touch there. And, and, and she's also the only person in her husband's circle who's kind of aware that this is going on. So there's this kind of like interesting layer of um, like delusions going on. And throughout the story, Lizelle is flashing back wistfully to this love affair she had in college with Selena, another black woman who is her classmate at Bryn Mawr. And you've talked a little bit about how you got the seed of LaSalle from reading about Shirlane McRae. It's funny because I was reading and I was like thinking of Shirlane McRae and then I like looked up other interviews you had done. And, and of course, and she's the wife of white New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, who's also um, a character um, I mean, in life and not in your book. But can you talk a little bit about your interest in Shirley McRae and how that transformed into the character of LaSalle? I mean, the thing about Shirley McRae is that ultimately she turned out not to be that big a figure, you know, publicly, really. She sort of like, we knew, knew about her. And then I think her, you know, evoking her conferred some kind of slightly more interesting Bill de Blasio as a figure than I think would have, you know, it's, it's like, well, what's this about? But, you know, but it was really just what you read. Like, I read that she was a lesbian. She was a poet. You know, the Combahee River Collective, she was part of that feminist group. Like, these were all extremely particular. And then, but the interesting thing about her was not that so much as and then she married Bill de Blasio. Like, and there was no, it was like, you know, there was, there, there was no trajectory. There was no tortured journey. It was like, one day you're, you know, and then the next day you're, you know. So I was kind of just like, well, how does that work? Or how does that happen? I was kind of interested in that about it. And I think that, you know, the other thing is, in a similar way, I feel like a lot of women my age sort of move back and forth 
between identities, but without necessarily saying that's what I'm doing in terms of their sexual identity. And that was something I had seen and I thought was interesting as well. But hers is a really extreme case because it wasn't just about moving between, you know, sexual identities, but also about moving between really strident political identities in a way that seemed kind of interesting. I was wondering if writing, thinking about talking about moving between identities, like we talk a lot on this show about crossing identities as writers and how difficult that is. So what what do, what sort of preparations did you make as someone who is in a heterosexual marriage, if I understand that correctly, you know, to write about this community and a character like that? I mean, I think that a lot of what I do comes definitely from knowing other people or talking to other people. That's what I always say. It's not like I only know one kind of person. No, I mean, it's true. <laughs> and then so much of it is also rooted in books, you know, that I think a lot, some of it comes from there, from thinking about like Audre Lorde Zombie, which is, which is a book that's heavily in this book, or even Sula, which is a book that's not a queer love story per se, but definitely has this really intense attachment between these two women. And even, you know, Mrs. Dalloway also has this thread of suppressed oh, for sure. um, queer desire, right? And so, so between sort of like knowing people and, and thinking about things, just sort of trying to think my way inside out and, you know, the books, I think there was that. And I, the thing that I felt more nervous about was writing anything about politics. Because I'm actually, I'm interested in like politics, capital P, like power struggles, you know, but I'm not interested in politics, little p. And honestly, like, I think part of my interest in writing this story has to come from the the show, The Good Wife, which is like (laughs) a few times I was like, actually became interested in like the kind of like West Wing politics that like I was not really interested in at all. It's interesting that you say that because the the characters in the book, I mean, I grew up, you know, near the DC area and like whether I liked Little P politics or not, I was going to be kind of drowning in it for like my entire childhood. And the the characters are so much more than types, but also I feel like they could spring like right out of the page into political circles that I've seen or know, like the conversations that they're having Yeah, I mean, I have actually, I've heard that from people and I've heard that from people connected to politics and I thought it was kind of alarming and I didn't know whether to think that 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 those people are cardboard and so it was easy to figure them out or actually that I know more about this kind of thing than I want to know. It's one or the other. All right, so here's the thing about uh, where we get to character names where that I've been reading and then saying one way and then Sugi says the character name a different way and I want to ask the author like, so is it, you said Lizelle, is that what you said? Because I was saying Lizelle the whole time. No, what is, what's Le- the- I said Lizelle. Oh, okay, Lizelle. All right. I thought I also said Lizelle. I, I thought you said Lizelle. All right, no. never mind. No, We're but all on the same page. No, but there are a lot of riffs on that because there are all these people who keep messing our name up. And so like the part where Wynn's dad is talking about Liesel, who is like from The Sound of Music. Like, so it makes sense, but it's Lizelle. And then I had to research how to say Afrikiti because it looks like Afrikiti. And I'd been saying Afrikiti for 30 years or something, but it's Afrikiti. And then you, of course, have the woman who, oh, actually the daughter of the woman who cleans her house, who is a right. PhD student whose name nobody can pronounce, or at least at least 
Only her son can pronounce him, it seems properly. So that pronunciation, I believe, is Zochiel. However, if you ask someone, am I pronouncing this right? I'll say Zochiel, and they'll say Zochiel. They'll keep correcting me, but I can't hear the correction. So as a result, I'm still not 100% sure that I, I have that right. But that's that's the basic the basic of it. All right, yeah. so... The only Go reason ahead, I know Sugi. how to say the only reason I know how to say Afrikiti is because I think you said it to me on the phone. Oh, it's right. <laughs> like it's like okay, good. Um, All right, so Lizelle's husband uh, reminded me not of De Blasio, but of people like say Mitt Romney, who has this sort of wounded air of being too patrician to be corrupt, or <laughs> others who have suggested that it's disgraceful to investigate the Jan- January sixth, you know, shenanigans, uh, like people like Jim Jordan, um, or even Mark Meadows, who when he was in Congress, had a black HUD employee, Lynn Patton, stand silently before him, before the House Oversight Committee to sort of prove that Trump wasn't racist. In other words, there's a lot of performing going on in real life politics and in the politics that we were talking about at the beginning of the show and in your, in your novel. Who was your political performer who you modeled win on? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline actually model him on a political performer although he is definitely a type but I just I mean I was more interested in him as there are people who wind up in politics for I mean any number of reasons why people wind up in politics but the thing with him is that he's sort of spoiled he's sort of charming he sort of thinks that by virtue of just being like um you know cis white man from a certain kind of background that the world owes him some kind of greatness you know um and I think like I don't have to think about like a particular political type to like I mean I think that that type of person is represented in all the professions and you know I I think that that's you know what he's trying to do is like impress somebody impress some imaginary person with this in a way that he hasn't been able to impress them with his mediocre mediocrity on the way right to this um so i think that's kind of what i was thinking about i have this vague recollection of um you and i were in graduate school together you were the year ahead of me and i have this like vague recollection of being in workshop and and a conversation about how to write party scenes and group scenes and someone i think it was you sort of comparing writing war scenes to writing party scenes was that you I like quote that to my students. I should credit it appropriately. Is that right? If, I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, it could just be another thing that Elizabeth McCracken said that we all remember. But, <laughs> I, you know, but it is in that there's like a million different things going on and, you know, the action has to keep advancing and it's confusing. But the, and maybe I did, I think I also did say that because I was writing at the time school middle school dance scenes which basically were war scenes as far as or massacre scenes as far as I was concerned right and it's funny that like this is the book where I finally stopped trying to write through middle school dances and just just jump straight to like middle age 
you know. Well, it seems like a it's like a seamless transition. It's like middle school awkwardness, like politicians around a dinner. So, so the reason I bring up this party scene, war scene recollection of mine is that when Win Anderson loses his election for the state legislature, Lizelle hosts a dinner party for people who helped him campaign. And you model this on, on Mrs. Dalloway and like this notable attendee, a guy I never want to sit next to at dinner, but who I absolutely love reading is this character, Ron Mack, who's also somehow impeccably named. Um, he's like a well-connected guy. And so he's so well-connected. He's definitely also like 100% Lizelle is sure that he's connected to Wynn being in trouble. There's this line about him that makes me laugh. Um, like Wynn had always treated Ron with an exaggerated deference, Lizelle thought, to cover his actual deference. But she had a strong inkling that come what may, Ron sure as fuck wasn't going to prison. The least he could do was bring some plates into the kitchen. And so I wonder if you could read us um, a little bit of the party scene featuring Ron Mack. I will just say to our listeners that I, I did flag a particular passage for a Solly to read. And part of the reason is that it's going to require a Solly to do a very particular trick in dialogue that I'm really dying to hear her read aloud. Okay. Um, Someone at the other end of the table was hitting a glass with a fork as if they were in a massive banquet hall. Ron Max stood. What are you doing, bud? When asked, sit down. I will not sit. I will propose a toast, he announced. Lizelle saw Ivelisse looking at him appreciatively. Ivelisse, she knew, had a thing for mediocre white men. That, quote, all-American thing, quote, she'd said at once. Oh, God, said Wynne. Let's save the emoting for dessert, please. But Lizelle could see he was thrilled to be toasted. Fix your face, said Verity. This man, Ron started. Well, first, let's get this elephant out here in the open and send him packing. We lost. Ah, yelled Vanessa. Ivelisse smiled sadly. Liza and Gary Appleton regarded Lizelle with frank curiosity. She tried to communicate her distaste for Ron to them, even as she fixed her face. You lost, my man. This dusty old establishment wasn't ready for a change. Boo, Vanessa yelled. His, chimed Ivelisse. That goddamn Church Williams, hissed Liza. His real name is Parnell, Chris said. Ron continued. But you're not the only one who lost. The people of Philadelphia missed out on a chance at some fresh, smart energy. But there was also some winning. Winning, shouted Wynn. You got much further in this district than some white real estate lawyer from Connecticut was supposed to. Yeah, said it, he seemed to say with a pause. White people rarely said white in mixed company unless they were making a cluelessly racist joke about how white they were. Lizelle looked at Chris, whose expression made her imagine him listening to the confidences of a particularly amoral congregant. You want our attention and loyalty beyond what friendship has engendered. And I'm telling you, brother, you will have that. The attention and loyalty for as long as you... Hear, hear, said Gladys Banfield, surprisingly loud, cutting him off. Lizelle raised her glass. As wind rose, he and Ron gripped each other dramatically. Gladys hissed in Lizelle's ear, I despise that man. Itsy would have hated him. Itsy was her name for Wynne's mother. Speech, said Ivelisse. Wynne stood smiling and put his hand on his heart. He was flushed with the night and with drink. Ivelisse, he said. She bowed her head humbly. Ron, Vanessa, Chris. He sighed, though Chris looked bored. He reeled off the remaining names, causing Lizelle to wonder if he'd given any thought to the order. We certainly don't have time right now for me to say what I actually need to say to you all. 
Dizzy with alienation and though they were down to an oversweet Malbec, Lizelle poured a glass of wine so heavy her wrist strained to pick it up. It had been smart of her to send Patrice away. She thought of a song he liked. He would bark, leave it on, when he came on in the car singing a sing-songy new rap song. Started from the bottom, now we hear. Started from the bottom, now the whole team here. What was the opposite of that lyric? She thought of herself earlier on the phone talking to the FBI, then saying Efrikidi to Selena's mother and wanted to crawl under the table for having done something so odd, sentimental and desperate. She should have been assembling the family's passports and investigating extradition treaties. Wayne was doing a thing he sometimes did. No one told him to do it, certainly not Ivelisse who had gone over all of his speeches with him where he imitated the president. The way he clipped some of his words, the pauses he added, the way he said, future. It was slight. No one would notice but Lizelle. He wound up his inelegant series of thank yous. I don't know, Obama paused, what my future holds, pause. But I do know, pause. I want to see all of you in it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thank you very much. Um, so, how much were you thinking... I, I... Sorry, oh. I just want to say that I feel like I've achieved something for the show by getting you to read a passage that involves you reading a passage of a white man <laughs> imitating Obama. Feels like some sort of like... I thought it was the record scratch that you thought was going to be hard. Yeah, I mean... Everybody well, can imitate Obama. Well, the funny thing about that is, that, yeah, right. No, I mean, the record scratch isn't even a record scratch. It's just that they bleep that out on the radio. Oh. I mean, I, I would have cursed, but Lizelle would have heard the radio version. Uh, all right, so... How were you thinking about depicting accountability and, uh, and power with Ron Mack and the other attendees at this party? And I want to say something else about the party, which is like, I, I've been recently working on a book that's set like in contemporary Kansas City, and it's about political power also. And what I found, what I loved about your book is that it, it depicts the way political power works today, which is that it's pretty diverse, right? And there are different constituencies. And the, the life that you're depicting here, I had a very close friend who grew up in Baltimore, who's with his single mom that reminds me of Lizelle's mom in certain ways. And um, you know, like this room and all the different voices and the way that they're blending is sort of the way that politics sounds like now, at least in a major city like Kansas city or, or Philadelphia with different kinds of constituencies um, and past novels weren't like that, you know? So I just found that to be really great and like accurate. Um, and it's interesting. And so I, I wonder if you could talk about that and also this idea of, of accountability that we're sort of focusing on for the show while my dog barks at the UPS man out in front. <laughs> um, no, I mean, so what you say uh, is true, but it's interesting because there's been a lot of critique um, in terms of, you know, black radical thought of the black political class, which is a recent, uh, you know, post reconstruction, right? A pretty recent phenomenon, you know, so I'm from Philadelphia where we had our first black mayor when I was young, Wilson Good, and that was in the 80s. And it was on his watch that the moot fire happened, you know? 
And there are just a number of people who you could see yourself reflected, you know, all the way up to Obama and the highest levels of power. And there's some in that bringing, bringing some people in, you know, but I think what a lot of people are saying is that it never managed to totally, it never managed to really shift the, the basic power dynamics, right? So the basic power dynamics, either nationally or the basic power dynamics in a city. And so in terms of the accountability issue, I mean, I think like the other thing I think that happens a lot in politics and, you know, I've learned this from reading the news, but then also the, like the watching of the good wife, <laughs> um, or, or even something like the wire is like, so a lot of it really does have to do with like people who like, who like and just trust other people and feel like they're going to scratch their back. And then, you know, it becomes a whole thing, you know? So it's like, when you think about why different constituencies get the things they're looking for or why others don't, I mean, I really feel like the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years, I've been made to think so much about how for a lot of elected officials, their job is just to keep getting reelected, you know, and not actually to, to make any kind of changes or fight necessarily for anything, but just the real focus on getting reelected um, is like the main thing. And so I think if that's the main thing, then accountability really can, can suffer quite a lot because to whom are you accountable when, you know, you're really thinking about getting reelected, not necessarily in terms of the electorate, but in terms of like fundraising or who's going to basically buy your way into the next election. Right. Well, I yeah. want to talk about that in terms of the, the, this committee that's investigating the January 6th and all the happenings that we've uh, leading up to that, including all these, text messages and, and stuff that's been in the news. Um, there are some people who are actually asking for accountability, like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who are Republicans who are on that committee. And of course, the Democrats are, but they, you could argue, Fox News would argue, well, they're just biased. They just want to smear the Republicans, you know. Who is going to ask for real you know, accountability here? Should we be crediting Cheney and Kinzinger for crossing party lines and doing something like that? I suppose, but I just... I this point, I don't really know. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm glad that there are one or two people who feel like taking that kind of a stand, but I don't think that, I do think in so many ways, like the Republican party has arrived at a place where they were headed, you know? And so, and so it is, it, it is hard for me to like, do that thing of being like, well, at least these people are heroes, you know? I feel like the Republican party is actually saying like the whole entire point of our party now is that we do not have to take responsibility for our actions. That's finally where we've gotten to. We want to do this. We don't care if it's wrong and we don't want to take responsibility for it. And this is what we're doing. But it's actually, I mean, I think it's actually more psychologically complicated than that because so much of it doesn't have to do with making anyone's life better. It's not as if, oh, I'm making your life better at the expense of your life, right? Like the mm -hmm. idea that you would have a party of people who would advocate against vaccines and masks and masks in school and fight to the death for that. Like, I'm not totally sure whose interests, <laughs> you know, no, I'm serious. Like, uh, I, really, question. I understand like <laughs> the naked will to power, you know? I understand how you have 
you know, in, in, in other countries, like these people, I'm holding up these people and the rest of you can suck it. Like I get that, but this is like the way I'm holding up these people is by endangering their lives. (laughs) You're like, that's where I don't, I I lose the ability to like sort of think. The connection that I make to that is that I think that there's an intuitive understanding and, and, and perhaps it's, um, more explicit with somebody like Trump, um, uh, that we have to break the adherence to truth. There's at least an official adherence to truth in American politics, and we have to break it, and we have to actually create a constituency of people who are willing to believe lies and 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 knowingly do that, um, so that we can take over this government, knowing that we're in the minority. But after they do that, then are they going to tell people to get vaccines or are they going to continue to be like, let's be the worst we can be all the time? You know, I think they're going to continue to be I think they're going to continue to be the worst they can be because. Right. I mean, I see what you mean about the will to power, but I think it still is the will to power because. Right. Like the people who they're playing to. I mean, I guess what you're suggesting, and and this makes sense to me, is that they should be playing to their voters, but like they've undermined the importance of voting such that they only really need to play to the Koch brothers or like whatever other like garbage, big pharma. So like they are actually like they're they're playing to the people who will keep the economy going at the expense of like essential workers, et cetera, et cetera. And like they'll just pretend that those people didn't die and that they're not, that they're not currently dying. You know, I hope that they get haunted to the ends of the earth and like the, like going back to the, the thing you were talking about before, like the sort of back scratching, right? Like Kinzinger said, he's not running again. So, right. He's not operating. He's like taking himself out of that favorite training. And Liz Cheney is sort of like, I don't know. She doesn't, she doesn't do it that dramatically to weirdly give a Cheney some credit, which I'm struggling to do, even as I say it, but like, she's, She's sort of saying that she like she I think she knows her political future within the GOP is like not going to be good after this. I mean, the other thing is like legit. She's the child of a war criminal. Like I just (laughs) that's why I'm like there's bile in my throat as I say. Hard to you know it's it's one of those things. So I I mean I'm glad that one person you know seems to be against the straight up coup. But also what a shabby coup that was. It was so shockingly gross. But I it's, it is hard for me to fully say like, oh, she's like an American hero or whatever. Oh no, I definitely don't. Th- yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say that. I'm sort of like, you know, I'll, she's gotten over the, the, the very low bar the GOP has set. But yeah, I, I, I take your point. Like I can't, I don't know, I can't, it's not in me to cheer for a Cheney. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about people kind of admitting fault and, when, we're not admitting it. We're not admitting it. And um, <laughs> when um, is not exactly unique in being bad at copying to things that he's done or what I think of it as his entitled audacity. Um, and the book is kind of full of references to stories people don't exactly want told. There are references to the 1985 move bombing, which you've already mentioned and which has been in other, other works of yours. Um, the corrupt and racist Philly police commissioner and mayor, Frank Rizzo, and also more personal stories like Lizelle's short love affair with Selena's four months at Bryn Mawr and, but it, she keeps returning to it and thinking about ways in which it's erased from her present life. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how Lizelle compares to the people around her in terms of kind of complicity with the status quo. There's some really interesting dynamics going on with class, I think. Well, that is a question that I thought a lot about. And I thought a lot more about it as I was writing the book than I think people have asked me about it. But, and that's also the reason for setting it during the Obama presidency. 
Um, what I realized during the Obama presidency is that, you know, until there was actually a Black person in the White House, I felt like Black people had a greater degree of plausible deniability of being implicated in whatever this bloody thing is that is America in a different way, you know? And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, that's still true. You're, you know, like... Um, a lot of Black people are a lot poorer than other people, extremely marginal, a lot of ways, targeted for violence in different ways. But at the same time, the fact that like we pulled the lever and cheered for somebody who became the most powerful person in the world in this country that doesn't really do a lot to, you know, promote the fortunes of anybody is, except its richest citizens, I think like took a, a new level of kind of responsibility at that point. And I think with Lizelle, she thinks of herself as somebody who is marginalized, who's fighting, who's sort of oppositional in these ways. She's a black queer woman who grew up in kind of a working class house in Philadelphia. But the question becomes, when you attain certain kinds of economic and social privileges, does that then change your status, right? In these, in these more ethical ways, right? And so I think like the whole scene with her and Xochitl and thinking about what it means to have like somebody clean your house and um you know like just literally just do these things for you like does that put you in a different kind of position ethically is it basically just unethical um and i think that like she's she's better than a lot of the people in the book you know but lizelle's also made this decision to create a, a sort of comfortable life for herself where she could actually avoid being oppositional and marginalized in the, a lot of the ways that she imagined if she had made a different kind of choice. You know, I don't think that that's necessarily unethical in that that in and of itself hurt anybody, but it does compromise her as a person. And it compromises in some ways the quality of her emotional life too. I felt like Selena was like, in a way, the, the played the role of her conscience like Selena is affected by and can't ignore the past and things like the move bombing and can't accommodate herself to power in the way that um, Lizelle is able to, right? And that's part of one of the things that I think Lizelle loves about her. Does that make any sense? Oh, definitely. Okay. Um, and I think that oddly though, Selena has this, there's this moment in the book where Selena kind of, it's this crazy rainstorm and she suddenly sort of has this flash about climate change and climate disaster. And I was like, well, I'm already su always depressed all the time. And now I have a good reason to be depressed all the time and I'll be, <laughs> be good. And there's something also I think about Selena that's useful for Lizelle who I think Lizelle would posit herself as very resilient, but in a way, you know, living so close, you're with your your nerves so close to the edge, there's, there can be a kind of resilience that comes from that as well, I think. Um, so it, it is, it's interesting though, to think about Selena as Lizelle's conscience. Selena is also partly modeled after Septimus Smith, who's the character in Mrs. Dalloway, who, while other Londoners are having dinner parties is going through this day where he's really suffering from his um, post-traumatic stress as a result of having fought in World War I. And so that too is a book about people who are sort of um, whiling away the hours in these sort of like 
leisure class pursuits, having deep thoughts while other people are like in different kind of battles, you know, in the same urban space. Uh, I really like also your comments about like, once you take power um, or once you become involved in power in American politics, you own it in certain ways, right? And so it's harder to remain innocent. You know, Kansas City, you know, has like most American cities had a long string of white mayors and then finally had a, had a black mayor. And then now there was a time of uh, during the Obama era when almost every person of power was African-American male. It was, you know, the, the head of my university and the police commissioner and the mayor and the congressional representative, you know. Um, and when you have that power, then you're connected to the things that the American government is doing. And, you know, like during that time we were fighting the war in Iraq, you know. And so there's that complexity of, of once you attain power, then you're sort of connected to the bad parts of power as well. I mean, it seems like partly the book is about that also. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true. I do think on the flip side of that, that, and I, I spent a lot of time during the Obama years thinking about the enormous uh, sort of opposition to him that he encountered even when he was elected. And what it means to be a first in a lot of these situations is not that you're going to come in and just wreck shop and, you know, bring on the socialism, but that you're actually <laughs> like just try really hard to ingratiate yourself with like total white supremacists, you know, who, really, who have the real power. And I think like so often that's what we're looking at. But, you know, I think that. I've actually, what you said about the Kansas City and the kind of power that was distributed and sort of began to feature more Black men, I've been thinking about that a lot in the last year or so with regard to Black women, particularly in certain kinds of institutional settings. It's like if something, and women of color generally, but if something is like a hot garbage mess of racism, they'll just be like, let's find a Black woman, of <laughs> put her in the front of it, you know, and like, and then if any questions about diversity or inclusion, you know, her name, that name can be mentioned and be like, well, we've just hired so-and-so, she's fantastic, you know. And, you know, I think the question is, there is, there's some kind of question about, there is, there are different kinds of ethical questions when you are quote unquote represented in these different ways, but there are also questions about the difference between a figurehead and, you know, somebody who's really participating at a, at a higher level. Yeah, I have to take a little, um, a very small detour here and say that like one of my sort of feelings about this question of like who's in power and how people react to it was like you know it wasn't that long ago like directing a creative writing program was like a super prestigious thing and like I don't know kiss the baby shake the hands um etc and it's so interesting to me that this wave of like anti-intellectualism and kind of questioning of the value of MFA programs accompanies like women directing a lot of programs and like many women of color. You want and... to come direct my program? I'm directing <laughs> which, my program. Which is, which is not to say that I think that there aren't any critiques of teaching creative writing, but it's like, huh, like, oh, there are now more women than, than men in higher education. And all of a sudden, all of like these empowered um, like BIPOC folks and like queer folks and disabled folks who are moving into positions where theoretically they could have more access now, all of a sudden, oh, that stuff's not valuable anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, it's all, all of these things follow a script. And I just wish they would check with the other industries that have already, you know, gone down. <laughs> we already did yeah. that, you know? Yeah. So. Um, 
Yes, I, I, Verity would tell me to fix my face for those who are not watching the virtual book channel. <laughs> Verity would not tell you to fix your face for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to talk about um, the book's dips into the past, which bring us to this connection between Selena and Lizelle, which is like so beautiful and like romantic and powerful. And sort of in this present storyline where Lizelle finds herself at this dinner party from hell, like offers Lizelle like sort of this memory of something different than what she has chosen, which is kind of like treading water with wind. And as we're taping with you, I think many people just, I've seen this sort of all over my social media feeds and in conversations with other writers, you know, everyone's kind of reeling from the news of the death of Bell Hooks, um, who was so influential. And your book is among other things, it's a queer black love story. And I saw you post um, also about being stunned about her death. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about her work and its influence on you. So I texted somebody and I said, Bell Hooks was my college, you know? And I, she was the first person I read who really allowed me to see myself in the world in a way, very clearly as in terms of like representation and really just in this very sort of erudite, but also accessible, and also passionate language of analysis and thinking about what it meant to be a black woman encountering the literature and images in this world. And I think it it's a, you know, there's a lot, there's certainly a lot of people that I read and, you know, affected me in different ways of the previous generation. So like a Angela Davis or somebody like that. But Bell Hooks had this. It was the first time I could imagine myself being the person writing, writing theory, theory and scholarship. She was like the, you know what I mean? Like the first person who, you know, when you, you see, oh, the first person, you know, when I saw a black actress or when I saw, a, you know, but she was the first theorist I saw who I felt like, oh, then I could definitely do that. And I just think that I have such a this I had such a visceral reaction to the idea that she was gone because she was such an institution like in the way that I encountered her work like in this way that felt in intimate even though it was like so I think in a lot of ways it was the first academic work that felt like intimate communication to me right so often you you feel that often about um fiction, or you might feel that about poetry, literature, right? But she was the first person with whom I felt intimately connected through this kind of work, right? And, you know, she's the foundation of just so much, you know? What of her books, which of her books did you read first? I had, um, I think I had Teaching to tran Transgress first, but so, I'm curious about what you read. Black Looks, definitely Black Looks, which had a lot of stuff about um, it has an essay called The Oppositional Gaze. It has a, a lot of stuff about media consumption. And at that time, I was in college and I was um, thinking a lot about hip hop. And I wound up writing like a thesis about um, representations of women in hip hop. And so just puzzling through these representations that were definitely about asserting a kind of asserting Blackness in a way that I found really affirming, but asserting masculinism in a way that I found um harmful she's one of the main people who even though she wasn't necessarily writing about that people would sort of use her work to really think through that in a way 
So that that's whenever when I thought about like as soon as I saw the headline, I imagined the cover of Black Looks, right? Like um, this black native person on the cover, you know, that's like a, it's a really iconic cover. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I don't know. I feel like it's been really helpful to me to hear about all the, all the different writers and artists who have talked this week about. Um, ways that they were influenced by her work. And of course, this, this was sort of like very much on my mind as I was preparing for this episode. And um, I appreciate your, your talking about that. And I think, it, I mean, it sounds like she's a big part of the reason you got a PhD. I mean, I remember when we were in school, you would arrive from, from sort of the middle of, was it the middle or the end of your PhD? And I was like, wow. It was and, the end, yeah. No, I was after my PhD actually. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, I think I, I just sort of like, I didn't, there weren't that many of us who had come, who were sort of melding, um, who had like critical backgrounds with the degree and depth that you had it. And so like, it sounds like, is she a big part of the reason that you also do that? I mean, I think that I, so I feel in some ways that I never really, I pursued teaching, but I've, I've not published any scholarship. And I think Part of it was the feeling that I really couldn't do both at, at the same level or at the level that I wanted to, but it is really hard to actually parse like the difference between me thinking about things and bell hooks. Like there's no way to like, <laughs> you know, but, and so this week has really caused me to reflect at how much um, that was a part of me actually thinking that I, I would move on that path at that time, you know? And being able to really try to build some kind of like, you know, attitude towards analysis that was extremely flexible that would allow me to move between like hip hop music and like the January 6th, like foolishness um, with a critical mind, you know? Well, I very much kind of felt that influence as I was reading and, and listeners, um, I just want to remind you, don't miss the days of Afrikiti, which is also just named um, a New York Times best book of the year. And congratulations on that. And thanks so much for joining us, Asali. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Anne Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. We want to give a warm holiday send-off to our University of Missouri, Kansas City intern this semester, Hayden Baker, who's done a great job helping us out, including suggesting some very cool topics this fall, like our October 21st episode on what rural fiction will look like in 2050. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also tweet to us, respond to us on Facebook or on Instagram. We're there. We'll respond back to you. We love hearing from the listeners. You can also listen, find previous episodes and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where, if you're an educator and want to use our podcast in the classroom or you're just a cool person, our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading and happy holidays.